Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter is near the end of the New Testament, follows Hebrews, follows James. You'll find 1 Peter. We have looked at 1 Peter before. We'll look at it again in the next several weeks. Uh, we're going to take larger chunks of 1 Peter. Uh, this is a message of great hope, and it seems to me that we live in times when people are greatly in need of hope, and uh, we will continue to call your attention to the Word of God because God has promised that we are not alone and that He has not left us alone, n- neither will He leave us alone. And uh, our comfort is in knowing that our God is for us even today. You'll remember that uh, Peter is the, if you will, the, the number one disciple. Every list of the disciples in the New Testament begins with Peter's name. He is the first name in every list. Uh, there is an inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. Peter clearly is in that circle. Some have uh, sort of over-summarized, and I'll, I'll join them in doing so for a moment. Uh, Peter is the apostle that uh, plays a lot of, uh, a large role, if you will, amongst the Jews in Israel and Judea and particularly in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, who became an apostle, uh, was the apostle who went to the Mediterranean world and uh, became the apostle who wrote so much of the New Testament, Paul's uh, missionary uh, letters and so forth. So Paul has a a much larger influence among Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. Peter, a much larger influence among Jews. That's an oversimplification, but uh, it is perhaps uh, accurate in many respects. Uh, I will say Peter is a generally considered to be Luke's source. Luke is uh, obviously not an apostle. He writes the gospel. So who is Luke's source for the gospel of Luke? The answer is Peter. Therefore, he is the source for the book of Acts as well. Uh, Luke writes more of the New Testament than any other author. You combine Luke and Acts, you have more verses, more words, more chapters uh, than any other author. So we're thankful for the work of Peter. He writes two letters here, first and second Peter. They have different emphases. We'll focus on the first letter. You'll note uh, as we read the first paragraph in a minute that he mentions a, a number of places that most of us have never gone nor ever will go, though we should. If uh, your schedule permits and you can uh, commandeer a, a trip to Turkey, I would encourage you to go. Uh, Istanbul is uh, the new name for the old city of Constantinople, one of the great cities of Christianity. Uh, And all of these regions, these are not towns, but regions that are mentioned here in verse 1 are all regions of ancient Asia Minor, which is today the nation of Turkey. So Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and so forth, all regions in Turkey. If you go to Turkey, you can tour these areas, and they're great historical sites for Christianity and so forth. And uh, we encourage you to do that. So that, uh, as backdrop, the uh, further thing you'd want to know is that Peter probably writes after the destruction of Jerusalem. For those of you who are non-historians in the bunch, you would not know that in A.D. 70, some 40 years or so after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. Uh, Insurrection and so forth got the best of them and the Romans said, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to put an end to all this. 
And uh, they came in and ransacked and destroyed everything. You remember Jesus had prophesied the destruction of the temple. And in fact, the temple was destroyed. You go today to Israel, to Jerusalem. You see folks standing by the Wailing Wall, the so-called Western Wall of the Temple Mount. Those are the only stones that were around in the time of Jesus' day. Because in AD 70, the Romans came in and brought great persecution and the people dispersed. You see that word here in verse 1? Uh, he's writing to people who have left Jerusalem in the dispersion. What do people do when tragedy comes, when sorrow comes, when persecution comes? They leave. They go for safety. They go for financial reasons. They, they go for a lot of reasons. But they leave. And where did these people go that Peter's writing to? They went to Turkey. No, it wasn't called Turkey then. No such na nation at that time. But they, that's where they went. So he writes to them, and they are in the midst of persecution. Turns out the Romans are not only in charge of Jerusalem, which they just destroyed, they're in charge of the folks over there in Asia Minor. So they left the frying pan, jumped in the fire. But in the midst of that, Peter writes to encourage. So we can be encouraged this morning. We're just going to read down through verse 9. Let's read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Just want to highlight three things in these two paragraphs. Hope you'll keep your Bibles open as we consider them. Notice in Verses 1 and 2, the apostle mentions the earthly status or life that we live is under the great shepherding love of God. Your earthly life is under the great shepherding love of God. Now, don't mistake that as an, the fact that God loves you and that he's shepherding you, that, that God affirms everything we do. You know, I'm always amazed that people say, you know, God loves me, therefore I sort of have carte blanche. God loves me, I can do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want. Really? I don't know what Bible you're reading, but that's, that's not true. That's not true of any relationship. I, you know, I know that you love me, so therefore you don't care what I do. It seems to me all my life it's kind of been the reverse. I know that you love me, so you really care what I do, how I live my life. So he's not suggesting that somehow that we have this blank check and can go live our lives any old way. He is saying, however, that as we do live our lives, trying to live righteously, trying to live faithfully, yet broken, because we're broken, we make 
mistakes. Some of our mistakes are colossal. Because we live in a world with other people who are broken and they make mistakes and some of those mistakes hurt us and some of those mistakes are colossal. Because we live in a world that's, that's not getting better, the notion that somehow you know, it's all spiraling into something that's just really going to be beautiful is just not a biblical picture whatsoever. In fact, we, we find the Bible predicts that there will be trials, there will be sorrows, there will be brokenness, there, there will be heartache, there, there, there will be sin, there, there will be all kinds of difficulties in this life. But take heart, Jesus said, because I have overcome all that. Well, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. You know, if you're in the thick, thick of it, you're in the middle of trials, you're in the middle of difficulty in some way, it doesn't feel like Jesus has overcome your stuff, your problem. Well, can you imagine these folks that Peter's writing to? They are, they are Jewish people who, as a result of the Roman persecution in Israel, have fled. So they're not in their home country. They're not in their hometown. They had to leave their possessions. So if they had a house, it's gone. It's lost. If they had transportation, maybe that's lost. Maybe it's not. If they had possessions. They had to leave half of those, dare I say, virtually all of those behind. And they've ended up in a foreign country. They don't speak the same language. They don't have the same culture. They don't have the same food. We don't have the same advantages. And we're all a bunch of sheltered masses hiding from the Roman authorities who actually run Turkey as well as Israel. Peter writes to them and says to all of you, don't forget you're under the shepherding love of God. Is that an important message for your heart today? I hope so. I bet it is. I bet it's important for you to recognize that you're not alone and that God is at work in your life, even in the circumstances that you would not necessarily choose for yourself or hope for yourself. In the midst of those circumstances, God is nonetheless your sovereign king. He loves you. You say, well, where do you get that out of that verse? Well, I want you to notice a couple of things. He used a couple of words that are very, very important. He, first of all, he uses this phrase, elect exiles. Now, the word exile is not a word that, for the most part, we use in modern communication. But there are some famous exile stories in the Bible. Joseph is an exile. He's sold into slavery, you'll call. He ends up in Egypt. Egypt's not his hometown, not his home country. He's a, a prisoner for a while. Then he's brought out and he serves the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And, and uh, the story, of course, is is a familiar one if you read the book of Genesis. He is a prominent exile. How about Daniel? Daniel is a, a, a Jewish, virtually a teenager, a young man, probably 13, 14 years old, and he, he is taken into captivity along with those other three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're taken over to Babylon, which is not their country, different culture whatsoever. Uh, by the way, we know that he's a young man when he's taken to Babylon and that the, by the time the book of Daniel is completed, Daniel is in his 80s. He's, he never returns home. The notion that somehow, you know, everybody gets to go for a while, and then they're going to have to come back because God's going to deliver them. Well, that may be true for, for your story or other stories you know, but that wasn't true for Daniel in the Bible. He never came home, ever. He was, he was carried to Babylon, and there he died, and there he was buried. Saying all that, I'm reminded that there, the most famous exile story is, of course, the nation of Israel itself. 
Joseph, of course, goes down there, and they, they follow him, and they have food, and there's a great famine in Israel, and they need to go down there and be taken care of. There arises a king who doesn't love Joseph, doesn't care about Joseph. He takes these people. They're very numerous. They have lots of children, and he says, enough of that, and he makes them slaves. And so for 400 years, Israel is in exile down in Egypt, and God eventually rescues them, takes Moses, that whole Moses uh, deliverance story is all about God rescuing his people from exile. So exiles are familiar. You may feel like an exile in this world. And if you do, it's because you are. The Bible tells us in Paul's letters that we are indeed citizens of another kingdom. Turns out our home is not here. Our ultimate home is there with God in the presence of God where there is no more sorrow or crying or dying or heartache of any kind. He calls us elect exiles, elect exiles, meaning that God has placed his shepherding love. That's, that's where I get that term. That God has placed his shepherding love on his people. They are the ones that God has blessed. And God has opened their eyes, shown, given them grace, and shown them mercy, and provided that. Israel, of course, is uh, the great people of God in the, in the Old Testament, and, and uh, the church, of course, is the manifestation of that. In our current day, our earthly life is under the great shepherding love of God. No matter whether we are in Jerusalem, our hometown, or whether we have been deported or dispersed to a far place where we really don't prefer to be, don't want to be, don't intend to be. I think about circumstances in our lives that uh, come all the time. You know, we, we, don't, we don't look for financial trouble but it can find us. We don't look for physical trouble, but I assure you it can find us. We don't look for relational trouble, but it can find us. We don't look for the problems of sin. We think when we get into sin that somehow, you know, this is going to pay off. <laughs> Turns out it doesn't. Sin over markets itself, oversells. Sin says this is going to be great. It's going to be sweet. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be joyful. And the Bible says plainly, for a season, for a minute, for a moment, it can be joyful. But then it brings regret and sorrow and disappointment. So, you know, we live in a world where there's, there's no end to heartache, and then we don't feel like we're under the shepherding love of God. But I assure you, friend, we are. Even in Cappadocia, even in Asia, even in Bithynia, those places are foreign to you, but I assure you what they represent in the application of this passage to our own heart is that we are loved by God no matter where we are, no matter what's going on in our lives. Notice how he continues in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God, in other words, God has a plan in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with His blood. This is not a time for a grammar lesson, but I want to point out that all of these Phrases begin with prepositions. So all these prepositions, according to, in the sanctification of, for obedience to, for sprinkling with. These, these prepositions connote purpose. What's going on in your life? Well, God is in the business of sanctifying. God is in the business of purifying. God is in the business of bringing your life, my life, into the obedience of Christ. 
There's, there's no age limit on the work of God. God doesn't stop work on us for a year or two or five or 12 and then quit. Instead, he continues to bring us about into his, the conformity to his son. The, the biblical word for that is sanctification. God wants to sanctify us. That word literally just means to make holy. I've uh, used the illustration, when, you, when somebody is holy to you, somebody is unique to you, you treat them different. You give them different gifts. You call them more often. You write them more often. You go see them more often. You hang out with them more often. You waste or invest more emotional energy in them than you do other people. Why? Because they are holy to you. You have sanctified them to yourself. This is what happens when boy meets girl, girl meets boy, and they fall in love. They sanctify that person to themselves, and they be, develop a, an exclusive relationship. That's a good thing, a righteous thing in the right boundaries, and God blesses that. He does that because that's exactly what he intends to do with us and has done with us. So it doesn't matter whether these people are in Jerusalem or whether these people are in a far country. It doesn't matter what situation you're in today. God has nonetheless sanctified you to himself. And he's at work right now forging in you a conformity to Christ. The Bible uses a lot of imagery to describe the work of God. For instance, pruning. Nobody I know has ever signed up. Yeah, cut me. Prune me. Wound me for a minute so that I can produce more fruit. Nobody signs up for that, but everybody gets that. Everybody gets that because the gardener knows better than the bush. The bush will grow wild. The gardener says, nope. The Bible uses another analogy, fire. You turn the fire up. He uses that analogy here as regards gold. Verse 7, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. What do you do with gold to make it more pure? You heat it up, the impurities are separated off, and that's left, you're left with better or more pure gold, more valuable gold, more gold that's gold instead of gold plus, whatever that is. Gold plus is worth less than gold. What does God do? He turns up the fire on our lives. We wish he wouldn't because fire burns and it hurts and we don't enjoy that. Can you imagine these folks? Yeah, I feel it. I used to live over there, and now I live here. I used to have a lot, now I have a little, or maybe nothing at all. Maybe my life is not how I planned it. A lot of disappointment in God these days. As a pastor, I talk to a lot of folks managing their disappointment. It's a real thing. I have a dream, I have a plan. I have a goal. I have an ambition. By this time, by this time, by this time, I want to have, I need to have, I expect to have, I hope to have. Don't have it. Look around. Your friend has it. Why don't you have it? We're envious. We're jealous. We're covetous. None of those things are, by the way, attractive. None of those things are righteous. We get disappointed with God. We hoped God would allow us to experience this or to have that and so forth, and God doesn't for whatever reason. We get disappointed with God. Can you imagine these folks that Peter's writing to? You think they're somewhat disappointed with God? Yeah. Real, real people. Real people struggle. 
Maybe you're struggling here today. Maybe you need to realize that your earthly life is under the great shepherding love of God. It turns out even in the midst of your disappointment, God is shepherding you. God is not taking his hand off of you. God is not turned away. God's not angry. Turns out God knows me, you, knows our difficulty, knows our tendencies. And he's going to continue to labor with us in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus, for sprinkling with his blood, to make us Christian. Turns out God really cares that we are Christian and that we act like Christians. And he'll do whatever's necessary to see that that objective is accomplished. And by the way, that's what you would do too. If you have a child, you would give anything, you would do anything in your power to help them be successful. And whatever image you're trying to help them be successful. The problem is twofold there. Number one, earthly parents don't have all power. <laughs> and secondly, you don't have all wisdom as to know what's best for your child. You think what's best for your child falls into these categories. And it turns out what's best for your child may fall into these categories. As smart as I am, I'm not that smart. And neither are you. So our earthly life is under the great shepherding love of God. He is telling us that plainly in these first verses. There's a second thing. In verse 3, it's not only our earthly life, but it's our eternal life. And here he wants us to see that it's the result of the great redemptive work of God. That it's not just his shepherding love that's in play, but it's also his work as a result of that. God loves and he shows it. God loves and he does something. In fact, he does multiple things. And you'll see them here. In verse 3, the root of God's work is in his mercy. Look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Christ, according to his great mercy. God has acted according to his mercy. None of us deserve the care of God. None of us deserve his love, his mercy, his kindness, his faithfulness, his provision. All of us deserve far less. God has been unfair to all of us to our advantage. We have deserved far less than what we've gotten, and yet God continues to pour it on. He gives us life. He gives us health. He gives us relationships. He gives us opportunity again and again and again and again. And why does God do this? Because God is merciful. I was... Uh, kidding with or I was in the middle of a conversation recently in a restaurant and we were talking about how the world was you know in trouble and how culture was taking a beating and so forth and the whole question of Sodom and Gomorrah came up or the mercy of God or so forth and, and I'm always reminded of this when that conversation comes up always you know, in that passage where God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham is praying for the people 
and says, you know, if there are 50 righteous people, then there are 45 righteous people. There's 40 righteous people. And he just keeps coming down. Eventually, he comes down to 10. And he says, God, if there's 10 righteous people, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says, yes, I will. It turns out there were only eight. But will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, for 10. And, you know, when people make these comments, you know, the world is so bad and God's just going to destroy, you know, America or destroy the world and so forth and so on. This particular week, we were in a restaurant and I said, well, you know what's silly about that comment in this context? There are more than 10 righteous people in this restaurant. And you look around the room, there, there are more than 10 righteous people in this room. What is God doing in our world? I don't have any idea what the, you know, the every brushstroke God is doing, but I know the general theme of what God is doing. He is securing for himself a people who love him. And he does that by pouring on mercy. God gives grace to draw me to him. Think about the people in your life. Who are you attracted to? You're attracted to the people who are kind to you, who are generous to you, who are faithful to you. You're attracted to people who, who, are, who, are, who are good people. And you're not attracted to people who are bad people, who are rude people, who are outlandish people, who are, who are ugly people, vulgar people, dirty people. Dirty not physically, but dirty morally. You're not attracted to these people. Why are you not? Because these people don't offer you that which is beautiful, that which is wonderful, that which is edifying. They, they don't add to your life. They suck the life out of your life because there's brokenness and heartache and so forth brought on by ugly, ugly choices. What is God doing in our lives? God's pouring on the good. God is kind. He's generous. He's faithful. He makes covenant and keeps covenant. He actually keeps his word. He does what he says. Why? So that he might draw you to him. That you might find him beautiful. That you might find him appealing. Turns out he is. God's not doing any of this so he drives you away. He's doing this to woo you to himself. According to his mercy, it roots in his mercy. His redemption work is, is based in his mercy. And the work or the goal of it, again in verse 3, is our new birth, that God would bring us to salvation. And that results in a living hope, living hope. Interesting how Peter uses that phrase, living. He's going to use it again and again and again in this letter. Uh, chapter 2, he's going to talk about a living stone, and that, that Jesus is, is the cornerstone, and that we are the living stones joined to Jesus to build a great house and so forth. In fact, he uses that word living eight different times in eight different contexts in 1 Peter alone. Peter loves that phrase, living, and he attaches it here to hope. We have a living hope, not a dead hope, which is not hope at all. Hope, you know, hope is powerful in our lives. You may wonder sometimes, why, why do people do terrible things? Why do people murder why do, why do people engage in terrible things? Well, a part of the recipe of their own lives is the loss of hope, I assure you. You lose hope, then 
That's a doorway to all kinds of evil. That's why so many, so many strategies that the world offers don't really provide hope. That's why as Christian people, we ought to, we ought to hang on hope. We ought to cling to hope, and we ought to celebrate hope, and we ought to wave the banner, come to Jesus, because he's the one who gives hope. You're in the midst of, of junk. You're in the midst of sorrow. You're in the midst of pain. You're in the midst of heartache. You're in the midst of disappointment. You're in the midst of sin. Come to Jesus. He can forgive you, make you clean. You don't have to wear that guilt. You are guilty, but you don't have to wear it. You don't have to carry around a bunch of shame. That's not the way of God. God forgives. He restores. God gives forgiveness. God gives restoration. God gives hope. God makes us what we were not. He causes us to be born again. He gives us an inheritance. Verse 4, think of that again, the, the prodigal. The prodigal leaves in Luke 15, comes back, kill the fatted calf. No, no, I'm not worthy of that. Got nothing to do with you, buddy. It has everything to do with the father. And what does the father say about that son? That's my son. And we're going to throw a party because my son was lost. And my son is home. God gives an inheritance. He gives an inheritance that none of us can earn. <laughs> he describes it with very, very vivid language. Verse 4, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Imperishable, we know what that is. It's indestructible. It's not going to wear out. It's not going to diminish in any way. But the, but the word translated here, undefiled, that means... A, a, it means stained or not, not capable of being stained. Maybe you have some fabric, a shirt, blouse, pants. Maybe you have a carpet at home, a rug. Uh, maybe you have a bedspread or something. You got stained. And you look at that and you say, oh, no, it's terrible. It's ugly. Not worth anything anymore. It's stained. That stain just ruined everything. I remember when our girls were young and they would spit up and they would stain this smocked something that I paid way too much money for. And now that thing is stained. I said, well, let's put that back on. No, it's stained. Stained. Well, we paid a lot of money. Yeah. Live and learn. Next week we go buy another one. Spit up on that one. Stained. Stained is not good. So he says here, what's going on with my inheritance right now? It is not being stained. Hear that. Feel that. My inheritance with God that I don't deserve, that he gives to me, based on the work of Christ, is not being stained. When I get there, there's not going to be smudges. There's not going to be nicks and cuts and breaks and cracks. It's going to be whole. It's going to be what God intends. An inheritance that's unstained. Then he goes on this word unfading. My inheritance is unfading. You know, everything in this life is fading, right? The glory of man is fading. Maybe some of you are legends in your own mind. Praise God. There was a moment. There was a moment when we all hit our peak. 
And for some of us, it was a long time ago. But as long as the mind holds out, we can remember the glory, right? We can remember the glory of being in our peak performance, our peak experience. But, but the rest of life from that peak is downhill and, and it's fading away. Life fades away. Everybody fades away. The glory of that moment fades away. You say, well, I need more moments, other moments. Absolutely. They probably won't come in the same way or shape. They'll come differently. But all that to say, we live in a world that's fading away because the, the creatures that God has created... The creation that God has created even longs for the day when there's no more fading. But our inheritance, our inheritance is not fading. You know what's going on in heaven right now? There's no decay. There's no rot. There's no up and down loss happening in regards to my inheritance or your inheritance if you're a follower of Christ. And he is celebrating that. He's writing to people who are in the midst of trouble, and he said, hold on to your inheritance. Realize what's going on here. You might live in Jerusalem. You might live over there in Turkey. You might have or you might have not. But hold on to your inheritance because nothing's going on with that. You look at this life, and this life is experiencing a punch in the gut on a regular basis in some, may, some way. There are difficulties and heartaches, and there are hurts and pains and sorrows. Okay, hold on to your inheritance. Because your inheritance is not being diminished at all. At all. And why is that? Well, there's the great beauty of verse 5. Because it's guarded by the power of God. Who's watching after my inheritance? I recently talked to a man who found out where I was from. and He had some money invested with another guy and not, not a member of our church, but he said, you know, you know, you know this guy? I said, yeah, I know the guy. And he said, well, all my money's invested with him. Would you keep an eye on him? I said, look, I, that's not really my thing. I, I, why don't you pick up the phone and call him? He said, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, okay, good. I'm a preacher. I really don't keep up with that stuff. That's not what I do. I know people, though. And you know what? They're all guarding stuff. And we want them to. We want them to guard our stuff. I want my mechanic to guard my car. I want my insurance company to help me guard my house. I want my wife to help guard my diet. She's doing a poor job. (laughs) We want people who help guard our stuff because our stuff really matters. And, And we want God to guard our joy, to guard our future, to guard our life. The good news is that Peter's saying to these folks, and he's saying to you today, God's on the job. He's guarding you. You don't have any idea what didn't happen to you yesterday. But if you live in this world, you live in harm's way sometimes. And sometimes it's really, really big. There are a lot of things that could hurt us. <laughs> but my eternal status, my eternal life is what really needs to focus, I really need to focus on. That's where Peter is. You know, he gives two verses to kind of our earthly setup and then he moves right into this long, long, long paragraph. Chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 8. He just talks about our eternal status. 
Because what's really going to give you hope? Is it that you got some money in your pocket? No. Because God's got your future. That's what's really going to give you hope. The living hope is tied to God. We've sort of been sold a bill of goods by the devil. That somehow what really matters is mostly our earthly circumstances. It turns out that's a lie. There's the third thing he says here, verse 7, verse 8, and that is that he encourages that our response would be more valuable than gold or that our response would be priceless. In the culture of the first century, when Peter wrote this letter, gold would have been the most expensive thing, the most precious metal. And as such, he, he went to the extreme. What, what is your salvation worth? What is your future with God worth? What is your inheritance with God worth? It's even worth more than the most expensive thing you could name. In his culture, gold. In our culture, maybe it's something else. But the point, of course, is that God is greater and the prize that God offers to his people and the response that God then would expect from us would be even more priceless. Notice how he phrases it. So that, there's your purpose clause, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. You have not seen him, yet you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. How many times in your life can you say that you've had so much joy you don't even know how to express it? I would say probably not more than once. And for those of you that insist, okay, not more than twice. In your entire life, you've had an experience of joy that has so much power in your life, you don't even know how to phrase it. And he says, that's exactly what we need to think about God, what we need to believe about the work of Christ, what we need to rejoice that God loves us and that he saves us and that he cares for us and that he's ministering to us, even in the midst of dispersion, even in the midst of losing everything, even in the midst of sorrow and difficulty. Praise God, he loves us. And our response is more valuable than gold. It's priceless. Our response is to be full of joy and full of hope and love. We are to look to God with thanksgiving that he loves us. At the end of the day, my circumstance is certainly not the circumstance of Peter's letter recipients. Neither are yours. None of us have been transported to another country. None of us are running for our lives. None of us are going through even a small percentage of the same kind of thing. But there are people here, and there'll be people here next Sunday, and the next Sunday, and the next Sunday, and the next Sunday, and they won't all be the same people. But it really doesn't matter who you are. You're going to experience difficulty. He, he says here, verse 6, you rejoice now, even though you're grieved by various trials. That word various, in the Old Testament, that's the same word to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. Same word. And it's the same word from which we get the English word variegated, variegated, multiple colors. 
various trials. So some folks have money problems, some folks have relationship problems, some folks have physical problems, some folks have just problems. In the end, problems. You know, if they're problems, they're problems. If they're heartache, they're heartache. If they're sadness, they're sadness. If they're difficulty, if, they're, if there's brokenness, it's brokenness. And I don't really care what you call it. And I don't care that we don't have a category for it. I just want you to know that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how difficult or hard or painful or sorrowful it gets, there is a God who's shepherding you with his love. And that he has proven how much he loves you by giving you his only begotten son. That you through him might acquire an inheritance that's bigger than all of your troubles here. You want to swap that broken down bicycle for a luxury car? Yeah. You want to swap that broken plate, cup, broken anything for something that's 10 times, 20 times, 40 times, 100 times more valuable? Of course you would. Why would you not do that? You would. Well, it turns out as a Christian, that's what I've done. I swapped this broken life for one that's not. And there's an inheritance with my name on it. Not because of me, but because of him. And he's keeping an eye on that inheritance and guarding it. And he's guarding it better than any earthly guard. He's guarding that because he wants, when I come, my joy to be inexpressible. <laughs> I hope today you have a relationship with Christ and that you love God for what he's doing in your life. Even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of exile, whatever is going on, God is greater and our hope is in him. If we can help you today find out more about that, this Jesus, we certainly want to. Give us that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the mercies of this day and the opportunity to read your word, think about your word, recognize, Father, that you're full of life. You give life freely. You give it to sinners. You give it to those who are stubborn, those who are wounded, those who are broken. And so this life, Father, matters more than we can know. And I rejoice in it that you've given it to me and to so many in this room. Others need this life. We pray today that you might open blind eyes and you would tender hard hearts and you'd make us those who see. Give us grace. We need you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.